Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. My name is Jeff and I'm joined as always by my good friends, Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. And very often we can uh, prolong the reveal of the topic and the reveal of our guest, but we have the topic streaming below us, I believe. Uh, and that topic is the, and we have the guest T-Mike streaming below us here. And uh, uh, the guest is T-Mike Childs. And uh, the topic is Mount Rushmore of fake bands that turned into real bands. T-Mike, welcome to the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, what what do you know, or what what efforts have you put into the chronicling and 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 uh, journaling of, of fake bands? Well, not to toot my own horn, but I literally wrote the book on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, uh, awesome. Hopefully, you can you know find this in a uh, uh, thrift store or you know gas station bathroom at at your convenience. If not, you might try eBay or uh, perhaps Amazon has a few copies left. Right. You can email me directly. I might I, I have some a box full. I can send you one. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And for the persons who may be just kind of listening in the audio only version of this uh, team, Mike uh, just held up the oops. That's the the Encyclopedia Rock Bandica. Is that right? Rock close. Rocklopedia Fake Bandica. Rocklopedia Fake Bandica. <laughs> just describe this this tome to our listeners. Oh, yes. Well, uh it is a compendium of uh, bands and musicians from fiction that are fictional. So uh, it doesn't include, uh, you know, so something like uh, Spinal Tap and uh, the Monkees, and uh, we'll get into the details of those. Uh, the Partridge Family from classic sitcom. Uh, things like that are, are considered as, you know, a fictional band for inclusion. We're not including, for, just to be clear, I'm not including like every person who ever sang in a musical ever because... Uh, that's, they're just singing as part of the narrative. They're not actually portraying, you know, a, like a singer or a musician. So they, they don't count. Okay. Well, uh, I, it's wonderful to delineate that because you kind of have to rein in the madness, right? Because it, oh. is it true that your website kind of went to be uh, a wiki of sorts or kind of users? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, originally, it was just me inputting stuff. Uh, and so the book has got about a thousand uh, entries but they just kept coming. People kept emailing me the, them to me. So, um, and you know, every year there's a new crop with new media. So or I discover a whole bunch of new ones I never knew existed or a whole new category or something. So I just turned it into a wiki uh, so that uh, I can, you know, try to leverage the crowd, crowdsource it a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I've had a few people who have been very helpful. So that's great. Right on. Uh I believe, though, uh, we have done a similar topic in the Mount Rushmore. What have we done before? We did uh, songs by fake bands. Mm. Okay. I approve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's uh, no reason to just kind of jump in. And um, every once in a while, we're going to uh, uh, replug the book and the site because, uh, you know, uh, uh, we get in the loop. Maybe somebody might have skimmed through this intro and we'll tune in in the middle of some point. But uh, as our guest, Team Mike, we'd love for you to go first with your first of the choices you have of fake bands that turned into real bands. Okay. Do you want me to start at number four or number one? Number what one. Number one? Whatever okay. order you choose. We don't know. On our end. Number one. <laughs> All right. Well, number one uh, pick is super easy for me, and that's got to be the Monkees. Okay. Um, because they. It's an interesting story of what me and my pals are trying to call Pinocchioification <laughs> of a band, mm. Pinocchioed themselves into reality. Uh, 
so they they you know these were just four people hired as uh actors and you know had some musical skills that they could leverage so they were literally hired to play this fate this fictional band even though they were playing it under their own names which was really the source of the great confusion of the whole thing and uh their struggle to actually grab control of their own career and make themselves into a genuine band is actually a very interesting story and and they uh they actually they managed to pull it off uh but at uh what cost though really because it was a wild two and a half years for them but then they kind of crashed and burned so Mm. but they managed to get it all back together 20 years later so that was nice all right on uh richard or michael had you chosen chosen this one no i hadn't i thought about it um it's certainly on the list of of choices for me um you know i you know what i mean the prefab four right i mean they are <laughs> they are yeah. uh uh a, a classic example of this i mean they always were at least vocally involved with the band my understanding at least you oh, know sure. so you know it, it, it's a it's a little little bit of a gray area there they didn't write the songs no they didn't play the instruments but they did sing yes it's interesting because that in, in a lot of ways that makes them very similar to like the Beach Boys. In that, <laughs> yeah. for the most part, it was the Wrecking Crew and and Brian Wilson, but for the most part, it was the Wrecking Crew that was actually playing the, the instruments on the album. Right. Even though whenever they'd go out and tour live, they they would play the instruments live, yeah. um, and that sort of was my understanding. Is eventually they had to learn how to play their the Mickey and Davey had to learn what to do in a live band setting. I know Peter had. had right. Had well, they, they all had some musical skill beforehand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, da- Davy Jones had been singing well before this. He actually is coming off a successful run of Oliver, the, the stage musical out of uh, in England when he comes to America for this. Um, Nesmith had been cutting some really obscure singles under the name, Michael blessing and mm-hmm. could play uh, guitar. Uh, Peter Tork was coming out of the uh, Greenwich folk scene. So he knew his way around a guitar. And uh, Nesmith, they, uh, I'm sorry, um, Dolan's they actually had to teach how to play drums for the for the role. Um, I think he knew some guitar, but he didn't know drums, so he he volunteered to learn the drums for the uh, for the show. Man, my understanding is that Davey actually knew how to play drums, but they didn't want him to be the drummer because they he was the cute one, and they wanted him to be in front of the drums. Yeah, it's kind, kind of, it's kind of, of ironic because they they had like these different skills, but they kind of like mushed them into these roles where they didn't actually have the greatest skill fit. So it's kind of funny. Yeah, and Davy Jones actually was uh, on the Ed Sullivan show the night the Beatles. Uh, Absolutely, first yes, he was. And and when he saw the Beatles perform, he's like, "Yeah, I, I got to get some of that." You know, he saw these <laughs> girls screaming, and he was like, "Yeah, that's for me." So. And he, interestingly, I... he had actually played another fictional musician uh shortly before joining the monkeys in a, a, a obscure, now obscure sitcom uh where he was like a uh uh you know english exchange student with the regulars and joined a band the regulars had formed so i thought that was a nice little interesting bit of trivia oh, that's fun cool I, I think all of this was actually engineered by the actress who played Marsha in the brady bunch because she ultimately <laughs> wanted to meet david jones now what one uh the i don't know if you're familiar with the podcast i refer to it many times and our podcast is the history of rock and 500 songs. And one of the contexts they give in regards to the monkeys uh, desire to rest, uh, uh, to, to regain creative control or to, to yes. have some kind of uh, uh, yeah. ownership of their career was 
that it didn't happen until they were starting to, until the show became popular and they started to make money. And at that point, they, it all went from being an acting gig to something that they felt like they should take seriously because now um, songwriting revenues were going to other people mm-hmm. um, and people were actually associating them with these performances and these identities. So until, in when it was all just this lark, this show that was probably going to get a pilot that probably was never going to see the light of day, uh, a show that might get canceled. When all that was the context, they were fine with it. When they started to make some money <laughs> and uh, other people started to make some money off of their likenesses mm-hmm. and their identities and their talents, that's when it became a, something they had to reckon with. That That's a very cynical view. Um, I don't... I, I can't, I, I won't say it's not true because I, I'm sure there is a factor in there somewhere, but from what I've, what I've researched, it really seems to have been a, per, you know, part personal affront to them, um, part a real desire for actual control, not just, not for the money, but for the creative control. And part of that was the, the pushback um, the, the, that they were getting from the general public because even though a lot of real bands were, you know, leaning real heavily on studio musicians that never got, you know, officially credited and made it look like the band was doing all the work. Um, they were taking a lot of flack, you know, from, you know, authenticity was everything in the sixties. So uh, they were taking a lot of flack, you know, from the, the hippie crowd and whatever uh, about, you know, not playing their own instruments, not writing their own songs. And you can pretty much take all of that and lay it directly at the door of one man, Don Kirshner. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. Mr. Rock Concert himself, mm-hmm. Don Kirshner. Yeah, so he's a bit of a, he seems to be a bit of a control freak in, in this, all these situations. So he basically was hired, you know, by the TV studios to handle the music side. And when he said, and when they said handle the music side, he means sing and then shut up and go away. Oh, uh. Because he wants absolute control over what and and you know to be fair he's very successful at this he has you know got the the top uh, like the Brill Building was a famous you know songwriting uh, mm-hmm. uh, center um, and so he has the cream of the crop of the Brill Building cranking out songs he gets to pick and choose what he thinks are going to be hit singles he's it was called the Man with the Golden Ear by Time Magazine because mm-hmm. he could spot a hit and he's feeding the monkeys these great songs they're getting hits out of them. Everything is going nuts. But here's the here's the funny thing. So the Monkey's first album is a huge success. The Monkey's second album is also a huge success. But guess what? The Monkeys don't even know that it got released. Somebody <laughs> had to tell them and they had to find out that their second album had actually been hit in the stores and they had absolutely no idea. That's how far out of the loop they were being kept. Mm-hmm. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, well, I love the context you put around this conversation because uh, what is real and what is fake and why does it matter is right. is and, an and interesting dialogue. Yeah, and that's part of the the conflict within the with the monkeys and, and management is because you know originally they just thought yeah we're just hired to play this band and it'll be you know we're going to be very funny do comic stuff and you know it'll yeah. be a very you know lighthearted sitcom and then yeah we'll you know mime to some songs or whatever as part of the show and maybe we'll actually go out and play some real stuff they actually put them on tour because there was so much you know money to be made so they had to get them you know put them through you know a training boot camp to get them yeah. up to speed but uh, so they actually you know could play for real at these concerts um but the uh 
Mike Nesmith, I think, was the the most sore about all of it all. He was the angriest about them, and yeah. he, you know, punched a wall when he after they they got some like nice fat checks, but he like still punched a wall, and you know, was like Don Kirshner, that could have been your head, uh, because he was so angry about the the you know the, this controlling aspect and like you know and, and Kirshner not actively not wanting any musical input from these people who were actually yeah. you know especially Nesmith who was a, you know wanted to be a musician and had been and had actually you know written was writing songs all the time so you know to have him shut down sh- shut him down like that was you know really got under his skin and they all worked and basically uh, Kirshner got fired from the whole thing because he literally overstepped his bounds and had us released a single uh, had a single pressed and put into release that the other side of the business had no idea was he was doing. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. So they, once they got rid of Kirshner, then they could, you know, start recording their own songs, playing their own instruments, bringing uh, creative control to the, to the whole project. Yeah. That's Don cool Kir- context. Yeah. Don Kirshner famously once said that he wanted a band that wouldn't talk back. And he, he got that with the Archies. Exactly. I was just going <laughs> to say his next project was a cartoon band and cartoons don't, don't get angry about creative control. Yeah. What I think it's so funny is, is think of the other sitcoms that were on at the same time. Like, were there any flying nuns who were mad at Sally Field? Cause she wasn't a real <laughs> flying nun, or, you know, or, or did she have to learn to fly and be a nun you know, to, at some point? Um, Okay, all right. Well, let's move on to uh, uh, the gentleman who are your opposition team, Mike, and that is the United Front of Richard and Michael. So uh, uh, I think Richard's going to go first. Sure. Uh, My first choice is Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Oh, fun. The uh, house band for The Muppet Show and a uh, longtime feature in all of the Muppet, various Muppet projects, who... In 2000 and look at my date right, 2016, we played a set at the Outside Lands Music Festival in San Francisco. And if okay. you get a chance, it's on YouTube. If you get a chance to see it, it's just glorious. Uh, they wound up doing uh, five songs, including their own "Can You Picture That," the song that they do in the Muppet movie. Excellent. They do. They also do uh, covers of the Mowgli's, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. And the band, and then they closed with a little help from my friends by the Beatles, along oh, with funny. a gospel choir. And it is all of the members of the band up on stage, you know, and there's Animal drumming away. And they had to rig up like this special harness setup so the the uh, puppeteers, the Muppeteers, if you will, uh, wouldn't be seen. And it's just, you know, if you're someone of my age who grew up with the Muppets, you're just sitting there and it's you're listening to them play and intellectually, you know, it's not actually animal hitting the drums. <laughs> you know, that Janice is not actually strumming chords on her guitar, but it all, it just takes a couple of minutes of watching it. And you're just like, Oh, wow. It's Dr. Teeth and the electric mayhem live. <laughs> this is so cool. You, you just cool. completely forget about the whole like artifice of it for me, mm-hmm. at least. And it's just, becomes this really cool thing that you get to see i remember back in um i think 2011 or 12 uh jim james from my morning jacket um was supposed to like go on tour like do like a whole i don't know if it was all of my morning jacket but it was specifically jim james and all of his like bearded hairiness was going to be like playing 
like electric mayhem songs like on the road i don't know with the muppets but like there was something that was like out there that kind of fell apart and i remember being very excited for it at the time um love this idea that uh this you know kind of uh the house band of the muppets which is very real very tangible too i think that's what is really attractive about these things being on stage and um all the muppets and all the the, the puppeteers that um uh kind of animate them are always very good with being improv improvisational too like whether they're on like you know whether it was uh you know um uh, anybody on like the tonight show or uh like doing like a you know live action oscar performances and things they're always very good at, like adapting to something live and like it, it kind of just speaks to how good they would be on stage like you could have yeah. them playing these songs and have real musicians doing it but then you could have like the the puppeteer actually interact with the, the audience in a way that would feel very much in line with um with who they are as characters as like these you know little um avatars for the the puppeteers themselves uh team mike it seemed oh. like you were going to comment oh just bold choice i'd say bold choice <laughs> um excellent fake band choice period though i mean I, I would they're in my they're easily you know my my top 20 if, if not the top 10 of my my personal best um I, but you know to to say they're one of the the, the top ones that have the Mount uh, to, to make Mount Rushmore status for bands that became real, that is a, a, um, a willing suspension of disbelief is doing a lot of heavy lifting. There yes, it you. is. I don't blame you. I don't judge you at all because it's it is an awesome thing. It really it really is an impressive feat that they pulled off for that one gig. Well, uh, I, I think that it brings to question what is real, and then if if they if performing live in front of a bunch of people is what it takes for them to be real. Um, the question is also like, you know, when Taylor Swift hits the high notes, is that real either? <laughs> so, um, uh, but- anybody, I, remember, I, anybody remember Millie Vanilli? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, they uh, beat out Paul McCartney for a Grammy, I think, so. Oh, is that right? I, I think he got it back eventually, <laughs> but that's yeah, a real cool choice. Yeah, I also love that um, it seems like every each Muppet can be kind of uh, has a real world um, analog, you know. Yeah. Doctor Teeth is being like a Captain Beefheart, you know. No, or he's, he's actually uh, literally based on Doctor John, the uh, New Orleans Doctor John. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I always like to think Animal is totally Keith Moon from Keith the Moon. Hood. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Janice, maybe uh, uh, a Janice Joplin, Joni Mitchell kind of meld or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, uh, um, then T. Mike, uh, let us know your second choice. All right, well, my second choice, uh, it, it's kind of funny because both my top choices here, my top two choices are also just top two fake bands, period. But I have to go with Spinal Tap um, because they actually uh, did perform live. I got to see them on their uh, uh, 2001 uh, tour, and uh, I, I was living in Los Angeles. I got to go watch them at the Greek where their other fictional band, the Folksmen, opened for oh, them. So they literally yeah. the actors opened as themselves <laughs> opened for themselves. That's awesome. It was a it was a great show. Um it, it took of them it took forever between sets though because they had to run back and change all their makeup and costumes. Uh 
but it was it was an awesome show and uh and the other things that they've done in character uh to keep the gag going i mean they performed a saturday night live as themselves they perform uh, were in an episode of the simpsons they actually uh uh were in the uh 80s heavy metal version of we are the world which i believe was oh, called here in aid uh, yeah they, they oh, the did, song was we are all stars or something like that was that i, I can't even remember yeah <laughs> yeah but they, uh, they, they, they've kept the gag going. I mean, they, they put out, you know, the, the Back from the Dead album. Uh, um, Harry Shearer, a.k.a., you know, Derek Smalls, put out a, a solo album, for crying out loud. And they're actually uh, gearing up uh, this year to shoot a sequel, Spinal Tap movie feature. And I'm really dying to see how that goes. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I know that we're big fans of Spinal Tap on this podcast and um they've made their way into many of our our choices here but, yeah uh, that's really great yeah i didn't i i think i think because they we brought them up so many times i think that's why michael and i probably didn't include them on their list but obviously yeah. a great choice you know i'm, I'm I, I still am waiting for david st hubbins uh uh jack the ripper musical to be coming out i'm sure that'll be <laughs> yeah, saucy jack is on the, its way saucy jack is coming anytime yeah. now but uh yeah, and I mean, it, the, whole, the whole Lick My Love Pump trilogy, where is that? Still, <laughs> exactly. That hasn't gelled yet, still. <laughs> well, don't we, just, have a, well, don't we have a sequel from them, supposedly? The, you, they've got the rights back from Universal or whatever. And yeah, that was the that was the, the talk of, as of mm -hmm. a year or so ago. I don't know. I have no idea if that's progressed or if yeah. they've shot anything or what, but. Um, uh, actually, I do have some details. They are they're they're going to shoot short uh, this year soon because everything got pushed back because of the writer's strike. Hmm. So they it was supposed to start shooting last year, but because of the writer's strike, everything got got shoved up a year. So it's going to be they're going to start shooting, I think, this spring. Cool. All right, Michael, what's uh, the collective R and M team's second choice? Oh well, I've got a terrible choice, and it is the band uh, Ming T. Uh, the All Mike right. Myers, Susanna Hoffs, uh, Matthew Sweet, and Christopher Ward um, jam that kind of spun out of like um, Saturday Night Live, kind of just like um, Mike Myers just doing like this, his ridiculous, um, you know, fake British accent, uh, Austin Powers character um, that turned into uh, this band that they incorporated into the, you know, original Austin Powers movie. And was featured in some way through all three of them, whether it was like performing a song, uh, 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 the BBC in the first one, BBC one, BBC two, <laughs> doing these little interstitial things with all, all of them together in the second movie and performing another song, a uh, daddy wasn't there in the third movie. But the thing that I, I, I think where it became like a real band is one, it involves like actual musicians, very well-respected musicians that are, coming into these roles kind of like reverse uh, or like almost like a monkeys type thing where there's real musicians playing these parts, but then like they would like perform as this band on like the MTV music awards. Like they perform like uh, the BBC song and it's wild to think of how popular Austin Powers was at a given time. Like I think about this all the time with my six going on seven year old son. Am I able to explain any of this to him? Like <laughs> I grew up like watching some stuff with my dad from, you know, like 20 years before, like watched a little bit of like, you know, uh, James Bond and probably 
had seen something with them with Michael Caine and, uh, you know, some sort of like 1960s spy movie genre type stuff. I don't know if he'll, if I plunked him down to watch any aspect of it, how much he needs to generate to enjoy it. Like in the first movie, there's a scene where he's unfrozen uh, and we'll get back to the music in a second, but there's a scene where he's unfrozen and it is a reference to like, you know, demolition man. So he's going to have to understand this to watch this scene in theory to understand it all. But to get him to get into like the kind of psychedelic type music and understand why that's funny. I, I don't know. Austin Powers just occupied for five or six years, just this immense kind of like ball of cultural mm. relativity. And I mean, he popped that ball and or that bubble or whatever, and it all kind of dried up after like love guru, but like, for him to be playing with these other fantastic musicians, a former guest of the show, Matthew Sweet, on like the MTV Music Awards or Movie Awards, it just seems really wild. And I, I yeah. think I chose him for like this kind of like the cyclical nature of, I came up with a character, I'm gonna make a real band, this real band's gonna be in a thing. It's kind of a joke. Then we're gonna actually perform with this and keep it going for five or six years. It just seems, pretty interesting in terms of how pop culture was all related at any given time. It, it, it's a real reverse monkeys kind of situation where, you, you know, he formed this band before the Austin Powers films and, and uh, you know, generated the character kind of out of the band so that you had like a real band, but they started, they took on these fictional personas and then they found a way, you know, to roll that into the movies. And uh, so that, you know, they oh, kind of started before. real and, took themselves fictional so it's kind of uh yeah. you know the opposite of wanting to be a real boy <laughs> yeah well mike myers has a very interesting relationship with like the austin powers character being kind of uh uh an homage at times to like his dad and his relationship with his dad and his dad was uh, british and um they're like their love of like uh uh oh it kiss uh michael kane type movie so he had like mm -hmm. this love it was like partially inspired by that but then probably just like him being able to do a voice and then thinking it's funny and then just like all these snl guys and girls who like they just get into like whatever and he was so into like that character aspect and all you know him and dana carvey just these, these two guys were just like all the snl people just blast like they have a character and he mm -hmm. found this one and it just held, kind of grabbed hold for a bit it was wild all right but, gang the there's Go also, ahead. you know, there was there, uh, spy movies were so popular in the 60s that they, I mean, they were it generated its own parodies. Uh, and it, um, Dean Martin had a run, uh, had several, I think, uh, Matt Helm movies, which was a much more humorous take on the whole genre. And I think uh, Matt, uh, Michael Myers was uh, Mike Myers was, was pulling uh, a lot of stuff from that as well. What was that? I, I can't imagine. Or I think uh, his manager talks about. The audacity of uh, telling a movie studio that wanted Wayne's World three that you've got something even better. It's a spoof of spy movies from the nineteen sixties. It was um, almost a spoof of a spoof, almost. Yeah, yeah. But it worked. It, yeah, it, it worked. All right, King. This is our halftime. Uh, we are speaking with T. Mike Childs, the author of uh, 
the Rocklopedia fake bandico. Ooh, his copy's much better. <laughs> it's probably autographed too. Uh, and um, uh, describe to folks who may have just turned in uh, what this book does. Certainly. Well, it is an encyclopedic uh, version of musicians uh, and uh, singers from uh, the book uh, started off just doing movies and television uh, shows. But uh, the website, fakebands.com, has expanded to take all comers. And I get, actually get excited when I find uh, fake bands uh, from other uh, media. I was super psyched when I found one from a poem that blew me away. It was a Ogden Nash poem, was really a decently known uh, a poet. Um, so the, the site covers a lot more. The book has about 1,000 entries. The website has about 6,000. So uh, come on down and you get to wiki so you can uh, join in if you'd like. Uh, what I know about authors is they're all eventually trapped by their biggest fan and hobbled with a sledgehammer until they type out a sequel. <laughs> so what would be the sequel that you would consider for uh, uh, this book, T-Mike? Is there one? Uh, if, if enough people want one, I can certainly, uh, you know, take the, take the website and, uh, uh, the material, a lot of material from the website and, and, you know, write it tighter and, and get it published, I suppose. But I would need, uh, I don't know that, uh, uh, I mean, I got a real book company to take a chance on my first book and it did, eh, it did all right, but I don't know that there was enough demand that any book company is going to think that they can uh, make money off the second one, but I'd love to prove them wrong. So come on down. <laughs> all right. So, uh, if uh, you want to take a chance on the Mount Rushmore podcast, you can follow us on all the different platforms. We exist on almost all of them, except for Truth Social. I don't think we're on tele- Telegram, um, but we're, we're, we're out there. And you could also uh, go even further by suggesting a topic. Persons who have suggested topics in the past ended up being a guest on the show. So you could be just like T. Mike Childs and have the adoration of... Uh, uh, dozens, all the legions dozens, dozens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be super cool um and then um yeah share the podcast uh, or the streaming video or whatever you wherever you find us with your friends so looks like we're back uh to richard the third richard's third choice no it's actually t mike's third t mike's oh, is choice? It? okay oh yeah, that's right. thank you i had right, one so job i would have to go uh my third pick is uh the commitments from nice. the 1991 hit film, The Commitments. And that was another sort of case where uh, the the hoopla, the hype over the whole thing really blew up. I mean, it, it's a rare thing where a successful movie actually gets a second soundtrack album put out, which was, wow. a, a, I think, was a, a real show of just how popular this movie was at the time it, it, it came out. Um, and... So it's it's like what Michael said. It's like you know, how do you explain, you know, this wave of you know tidal wave of pop culture that comes swooping in? Like I, I don't think I can explain to anyone the California Raisins hype. <laughs> I, I I don't think anyone is going to believe me. Um, we're going to on, on that as best as I can try to explain it. But it was just an insane, out of control, mm-hmm. uh, a thing that's worth of you know podcast on its own. Um, but I think the, the commitments was actually, you know, part of the thing was like the monkeys. They picked people who could actually pick, you know, musicians slash actors, not just actors miming to stuff. They, these people were actually performing the songs. Uh, they, the, it's what the directors really wanted. They wanted to show like an actual real working band and actually have them be a real working band. 
and uh, they did an excellent job with that. And that speaks to the success of the film and the, and the albums that, uh, that they did. In fact, so much so that after the film was over, um, a, a handful of the original band members went on and formed their, their own version of the commitments, filled in the empty spots and went on tour. Uh, I don't think they could legally call it the commitments. I think they were called the stars from the commitments but they were playing all the same songs, of course, that they had played in the film. So I think that would be my third choice because the commitments really did, uh, you know, make that leap. Uh, and, you know, I think you, you might could get more cynical with this group and say there was a lot of money to be made doing such a thing. And that might have been might have been a factor yeah. per se, per chance. That's a fun choice. Uh, that's a real great choice. And then it was a Glenn Hansard. He had his own. Well, I guess he was. A fictional musician later on and once i think so he kind of did it twice um all right uh so wh- who who of you who of you gentlemen is going to try to take on this uh juggernaut of it's... t mike childs this guy who's got so much <laughs> uh bona fides that you do not where's your yeah, book it... guys um well we michael and i did write a book but it's about kickball so it oh sorry count. okay <laughs> um I, I will go next our third choice are those brothers of blues the blues brothers oh wonderful um a band that started off as kind of a uh a, a warm-up gig something that that uh, dan Aykroyd and john belushi would kind of do to warm up the crowd at saturday night live and they would also do it at their bar that they owned in new york that they had it was kind of like this underground bar in this real apparently it was a real rat hole sort of place that everyone would go to to after party after the show was over um and they would get up and they would do the 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 brothers of blues the bruce blues brothers and dan Aykroyd was like the really big blues aficionado and he kind of introduced john belushi to blues and soul and rhythm and blues music and eventually they decided they uh did a uh segment on saturday night live with them doing a song and that led to them opening up opening up for steve martin for one of his uh shows i believe it was at the the old universal amphitheater here in southern california which wound up being recorded as an album which wound up making the top 10 briefcase full of blues and from there it all kind of just exploded that's where we get the blues brothers movie that's where we get kind of all of the the singles and everything what everyone knows about the blues brothers and it, i was just always fascinated with the idea that you've got these two goofy comedians fronting the, this band and the band has this just unbelievable makeup of blues jazz r&b soul musicians i mean it's pretty much a who's who of who was doing soul and blues music in the 60s and 70s as terms of backing musicians you've got the uh steve cropper and donald duck dunn from booker t and the mgs paul schaefer was supposed to be the uh in the movie he was actually the person who kind of was really responsible for bringing all these musicians together but he was on saturday night live at the time and lauren michaels wouldn't release him from his contract to let him go shoot blues brothers so he couldn't be in it but I just, I, I was just always fascinated as being being a musician of the fact that you've got these unbelievable musicians who are backing these two doofuses wearing <laughs> sunglasses and, and, you know, suits 
pretending to be actual musicians. Hey, hey man, a gig's a gig. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're absolutely on the nose with this one, uh, I think, because it, it was it is an impressive backing band. I mean, this this is probably this is a, a band that could probably cr- crush the uh, legendary Wrecking Crew. Um, if anybody could, although they might, there might be a lot of overlap there. I don't know all the details. Uh, it's it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, but I think what we have here is that we have another uh, like like Michael's choice, the Ming, Ming T. You have a sort of Ming T trajectory, where you have these you know guys you know doing real music for fun, and then out of it they develop these characters, and then out of the characters uh, they develop backstory. They come up with a whole movie for them to be in, and. And uh, uh, also, I think I just want to say that this is perhaps the best movie to come out of Saturday Night Live characters ever. Sure. And, uh, yeah. I mean, Wayne's World is, is a decent second, for sure. But uh, I can't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I can't think of a better uh, SNL, you know, character movie. Yeah, and like I said, it is this sort of weird thing where, like you said, it started off as a goof, became a char- became characters, became a movie. Then they would go out and tour behind with the band. So then it becomes even more legitimate. And it kind of propels itself in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I just, I, I remember having, my brother had having briefcase full of blues. And that was probably my first introduction into that kind of world of, you know, Chicago blues or Memphis soul or anything like that. And from there, that's kind of where I started like, oh, What's Booker T and the MGs? I should give these this a listen to because it turns out that a couple of the guys were in the Blues Brothers. So I started listening to Booker T and the MGs, and then you just sort of start sort of going down the uh, going down the rabbit hole a little a little bit. Yeah, and that's for me. That's where my love of that that type of music came from, and I can directly trace it to something as goofy as the Blues Brothers. And, and interestingly, you know, even though they're comedians. They never once tried to write any of their own songs. As, I mean, they wrote plenty of comedic material, but they didn't try to like you know do funny songs. They didn't try to write funny songs. They didn't try to write parodies of the music they loved, which right. a lot of other people would have done probably in their shoes. They did straight covers. I mean, they did them. You know, there was no um, extra layer of of you know parody or humor they were trying to add. They were doing these straight up as lovers of this type of music. And they, you know, picked the cherry picks like the monkeys. They got, you know, the best songs because they were already out, laying out there for the taking and they just covered them. And that uh, is part of this magnificent appeal. And also part of the appeal um, that comes up uh, is this, you know, the 20 year nostalgia cycle is what this kind of fits into, because all this music is, you know, uh, uh, a little bit later, the the big chill, like pretty much launches like an entire you know boomer nostalgia era for the music of the 60s and stuff so this this is sort of presaging that a bit with all this fantastic uh you know early 60s uh early to mid 60s uh rhythm and blues music that is of course fantastic and they really and and impressively they had some of the vocal chops to pull it off they weren't just like you know embarrassing themselves out there yeah i was at uh universal theme park standing watching the um the Jake and Elwood Blues act at Universal Theme Park in LA. And uh, at first I was reading it as what it was, a crappy theme park (laughs) uh, show. And then I stopped and realized this music was recorded feet away at the Gibson Amphitheater 
uh, formerly Universal Amphitheater in, in some of its original form. And the Blues Brothers was filmed partially on that Universal lot. So <laughs> for, for all the efforts that these 22-year-old kids are doing to try to pretend to be Jake and Elwood Blues, and this woman is trying to be Aretha Franklin because nobody else is, um, they are in the authentic, they are, they are at <laughs> the, the source in, in that area. They aren't at 30 Rock in, in New York, but they're kind of at the source. So that was kind of cool. And I love that um, other bands would not have the audacity to bring, to surround themselves with uh, such authenticity. So other bands might say, uh, you know, if, if you sit down next to Ray Charles, you are going to get blown out of the, off the screen. But they had the, the courage or at least the, 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 the knowledge that that would help give them the bona fides that they would need to do that show. So, um, okay, Michael, what do you got? Oh, sorry, T-Mike. I think this is your, is this your last one, T-Mike? Yes, this yeah, is my last one. Good luck. Try to pull it out, man, because uh, I don't know. I think we've all got good choices here. Um, I agree, I, I agree. Blues Brothers was definitely on my short list, uh, absolutely, yeah. for this for this podcast. But um, I had to I had to kick it aside for uh, my own one of my own personal favorite fake bands uh, that's in my my top three, and that is the Ruddles. I knew it, Richard. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. What do you yeah, know about this? Yeah, well, we've talked about the Ruddles before, so this is a popular <laughs> pick around with yeah. with me at least. Yeah, awesome. Uh, it, it's, uh, and, and it's not an obvious pick because for the, for this podcast, it's obvious fake band pick, but not for fake bands going real because, you know, it, it have it was pretty uh, low key when it, when it did happen. Um, so obviously you have the, uh, late seventies, uh, TV special, uh, that launched, uh, that, well, didn't launch the whole thing, but started as a skit on, uh, Eric Idle from Monty Python's spinoff, um, you know, a solo show, uh, Rutland Week in Television. Where they did a couple of they did like two bits, one with uh, his musical collaborator Neil Innes doing a John Lennon parody, and then they did like an early Mercy Beat era uh, '60s, early '60s uh, parody of the Beatles, and then out of that they got that aired on SN Saturday Night Live, and then that got like crazy fan mail. So they were like, "Let's do more," and so they got you know the the network to pony up for a, a you know full length TV special that had turned out to have the lowest ratings ever. <laughs> Yeah, it was, a, it was a spectacular disaster. Which... It, it really was. It really was. But the 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 trouble, the, the what hooks me into this though, is uh, is uh, two things, and one is the depth of the actual album that was released was beautiful. It was a it was a gatefold cover. It was the only single disc, but it was a gatefold cover. It had a booklet in it with all these bits. Uh, you know, all the the carefully. Uh, aped and 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 uh and parodied uh album covers and and scenes and, and shots from the actual beatles lives that were parodied all worked into this beautiful gorgeous booklet uh and so the the and the so the the album itself was wildly overdone for a tv special soundtrack album and then the second and most critical crucial element of my my virgin my overwhelming fan fan stand for this is the music of neil ennis who absolutely nails it in this special. He did not have to go as hard as he did, but he did, <laughs> and I am so glad. Well, of course, Neil Innes had a uh, had a Beatles connection because they his Bonzo Doodog band actually was in Magical Mystery Tour. 
right and uh, their their single uh their their single mr apollo was produced by uh paul mccartney yeah so it was uh i'm the urban spaceman I uh, thank you sorry i got it wrong i'm the urban spaceman that's, that's the right title yeah so I heard I, fun... go ahead Jeff. Go ahead. oh go i heard fun me. bit of trivia that apple music number one the first record pressed by apple music was not a james taylor album or a beatles album or a Badfinger album or whatever. It was a custom recording uh, for the event of Maureen Starkey's birthday of Frank Sinatra singing The Ladies at Champ uh, with custom lyrics just for Maureen Starkey. So Apple Records 0001 was The Ladies at Champ. Um, uh, she married Ringo when she could have had Paul. <laughs> That's why the ladies. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's Sorry. to me. That is a deep dive. Nicely done. Wow. Yeah, I don't want to thank history of rock and five hundred songs for that. So, yeah. Richard, you were going to make a point about our actual topic, was which was the uh, the rattle. So, yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, the, the I actually have had between us stuck in my head for the last couple of days, maybe because I was thinking about the rattles in relation to this, but you know, I think that. You know, I one of the one of the things that we've talked about. I think maybe we talked about it in the the our other uh, fake bands episode is the fact that the Beatles had very different reactions to the Ruddles, which I always found very fascinating. I mean, George actually was in the Ruddles playing a a newsreader. Um, apparently, Ringo said he liked it, but he found some of the sad parts a little too hard to watch. John was generally appreciative of it, and Paul actually forced them to pull uh, Get Up and Go, which was essentially the, their version of Get Back from the uh, soundtrack because he thought it sounded too much like Get Back. Oh, so, I, I think that actually might have been Lennon. And I think that was more like a friendly warning. Like, you know, the record companies oh, okay. won't let you get away with it. Uh, and in fact, okay. they didn't. They didn't, let, they didn't let Neil Ennis get away with any of it. They, they like, you know, took him to court and he had to set, he didn't have the lawyer money. So he had to settle out of court and basically give them 50% of all the royalties uh, because it would, he aped the Beatles music so well. They were like, you know, even though he tried to defend himself in court with musicologists and everything, they were like, he, he finally, you know, he didn't have the money to fight it. So he just, you know, gave him the 50% and moved on. And the, uh, I guess to, to, to kind of close the loop on this, the, the, one of the reasons this became fake band becoming a real band is because years later when the anthology series came out, uh, the Ruddles had a comeback album with Archaeology and Neil <laughs> Ennis and, and the other remaining living members of the Ruddles uh, did play some concerts around uh, England and the United States. Yeah. And, and to me, it's this, um, there's this amazing sort of coincidence. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously the tragic loss of John Lennon with the real Beatles and so, you know, the the um, uh, anthology series, you know, goes forward without him being a participant. But the parody archaeology, actually, one of the Ruddles had actually passed away a few years before. And so they they leaned into that for the album and the mythology mm -hmm. that he had actually passed away as a character as well. And that this was only three Ruddles left, um, you know, to put together this archaeology album. Uh, and actually, in real life, they actually used some tracks 
that he had recorded back when he was still alive for the first albums and reused them, uh, uh, you know, and the other ones overdubbed their, you know, overdubbed on top of it, which was just sort of a fascinating parallel, a real life parallel, uh, fictional parallel that just kind of blew my mind at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Michael Winfield, wrap it up for us. Last choice is the fictional turned real, um, animated band, um, death clock. Um, I am oh, a big, big um, Brendan Small fan um, from back from the home movie days and uh, going back even further, um, kind of the Lauren Burchard kind of produced um, Soup to Nuts, Squiggle Vision, um, Dr. Cat, Professional Therapist. And there's this great through line of like just weirdness and musicalness throughout all of it. And um, at some point in the home movies days, um, Brendan Small, who did the lead voice of Brendan and also a writer, also did all the music. He's a great musician. And at some point um, on like one of the DVD box sets, he put out like these weird like other things. And one of them was the, God, I got to, I got to read the actual text of it. It was the um, Advanced Fast Hand Finger Wizard. And it was like a five or six minute like bit where he's dressed up in kind of like these, um, uh, like live action where he's dressed up in like a kind of fur vest and has a fake kind of big, long blonde mustache and long blonde hair. And he's kind of talks in this really dumb voice like this, but he's doing like this. He's like teaching people how to play guitar really quickly and he can do it perfectly. But, and he's just kind of like, see, that's just what you do. And he's just like wailing on this guitar and just can just really a powerful, powerful guitarist and cut to a few years later and um, Adult Swim has, uh, they start putting out this um, death metal, you know, 11 minute cartoon in the fashion that they love to do on Adult Swim called uh, Metalocalypse. And Death Clock is this fictional band um, built on these five, you know, kind of death metal uh, rockers, uh, Squizgar Squigelf and Toki Wartooth and Nathan Explosion and Murder William Murderface and Pickles a Drummer. And all the, it's just like this real brutal, heavy, dark, really bloody, really violent, really, uh, but very, very funny. Um, very, very funny. And maybe a year after it came out, he put out an album because he's this great musician and put all the out, all the music that he took from his show and put it on an, an album called the death album. And I think later that year within the same time frame, he and another member of the, um, uh, uh, I think one of the other producers, another musician, uh, Steve Blanca, Blacha or something like that. Um, they started kind of touring a little bit with like some other backup musicians. And so they'd have this, this like kind of animated show behind them as they all dressed in black and played the real music and, and, uh, 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 Brennan Small does the voice as well. So he was singing like Nathan Explosion with this deep, you know, really deep, almost unintelligible, which is part of the beauty of it. You have no idea what he's saying. Um, music and for the past, I don't know, almost 15 years in various stages, um, Death Clock has been like touring with like, um, uh, uh, you will know us from the, by the Trail of the Dead and uh, like Baby Metal and all these different like real death metal bands. And I like, I love that they're like appreciated, not just for like the parody of it. And there's a certain aspect of people that go to see it because it's based on a comedy and based on a cartoon, 
but because they're actual like real fucking great <laughs> metal players and they he plays really fast and he's really complicated and the music is you know ridiculous like a mermaid murder and uh i don't know death execution and things like of that nature just everything's about just getting destroyed and burdened and everything um but they have this amazing like i think over the years have developed like this there's no like pretense right like there's no they're not pretending to be the animated band they have the animated stuff that's playing on the stage and behind them, you know, Dr. Roxo, the rock and roll clown is, comes out and he does his cocaine bit and he's like, you know, <laughs> gets the crowd to chant and do a bunch of bits and stuff. So it's like, they're not like out there pretending to be this band, but they're this band, they're this real band. If you, I bet if you dressed up in makeup and put them all in makeup and put them on stage, it would look ridiculous. But the fact that they're just out there in black and playing to an animated you know, projection behind them, like all bands do, which is wild. All bands have, or so many bands have like some animated something that's playing, some psychedelic something that's playing in the background. They just happen to have like the actual animation from what they produced over the last uh, 10 years. It, it, it kind of goes back to, to like the, the, the appeal is, is, I mean, there obviously there's a lot of humor. They, they get out of this premise. It's, it's a really great show. I've seen, uh, it's very funny. Um, but again, it's one of those instances like the Ruddles where you didn't have to go so hard on this music, but you did. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> impressive. I mean, yeah. not just like, I mean, I've had to listen to so many like lame parodies of, you know, real styles of music and, band, you know, and specific musicians and specific styles. And a lot of it is just kind of like this duh, dur dur version of, you know, that genre or whatever. But uh, this stuff, and they're like the ruddles it's just so well done you could like pass it off as the real thing and and they and they've got the chops i mean as the other thing not only like you know neil innes nailed all the different eras of the beatles as well like all the different you know dabblings they did in different genres and, and the death clock totally like nails the musicianship yeah, that is they required t- for this genre which is not t- easy they took the music seriously, but then they have comedic elements of the of of, of the lyrics that if you read the lyrics as you're listening along, it's you know just ridiculous and horrific. But um, the actual attitude and the skill that they have with play, within playing as a band, um, whoever's kind of cycling through is like the alternate uh, band members is just like like you said, just top level. Yeah, have you seen? Is it have you seen them perform? Not live. I mean, I haven't. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, I'm a little scared to go to a clock <laughs> show. <laughs> I was watching some. Uh, I was watching a couple of live performances, and like you know, it's a death metal crowd. So like, there are people that are really, uh, you know, uh, bashing into each other. And I'm like, I'm I'm 45, and I'm too frail for that. I'm <laughs> I'm going to be at the back, like uh, uh, <laughs> just sitting down quietly. Yeah. If somebody is about to smash into you, explain to them that you're ironically there, and they'll go, <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. Uh, so this is awesome. What a fun conversation. Such great choices. Uh, it's been uh, really great to listen to not only the choices, but the justification and then the talk about that. Uh, I would say that Michael and Richard put, put up a great, great fight. And I will take one of their choices just because uh, the Blues Brothers is just such a huge thing for me. Um, and I'm going to take two of T. Mike's choices. So that's on the Mount Rushmore of Blues Brothers. Two of T. Mike's 
choices. Uh, monkeys and the Ruddles. Uh, I love Spinal Tap, but I'm going to go Monkeys and Ruddles. You know what? Actually, I'm going to take three of T. Mike's choices, but one he, he didn't even mention in this discussion. But I pulled it from the encyclopedia that he's created, and that is bad news. Uh, oh, if you're yeah. familiar with the young ones, then you oh, nice. may have have seen uh, the comic strip. So before, a year before Spinal Tap came out, uh, this um, episode of the comic strip premiered uh, featuring some of the persons who we know. Could you tell uh, the listeners about this episode of Bad News uh, and what it featured, the worst heavy metal band in the world? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty good. Um, I mean, we've got uh, it. it uh, so um, I can't quite remember the name of the show, but it was, it had a bunch of the young ones in it. And this was like a, it was an anthology comedy show they were doing. So none of the episodes were connected. So this particular episode was a documentary crew following the small time metal band around uh, and all their, you know, shenanigans and, and troubles and a lot of fourth wall, like talking to the documentarians. Are you getting this or do we have to it'd be a lot quicker to get to the gig if we didn't have to stop and have you film us driving, you know, under every bridge on the way to the gig. Uh, and the, they had some genuinely terrible metal songs. And they uh, had were releasing actual singles in, in the UK and then uh, Rhino Records collected it all and, and put it out in the US, uh, which I was a big fan of, of. Couldn't was really happy to get my hands on that that CD. Uh, and they actually played some actual metal festivals, uh, or at least one big one. Uh, so they were actually a functioning uh, stage act that could actually play uh, uh play real instruments but part of the gag was they weren't very good at it and they actually you know work that into the act where they have like you know uh their their guitarist is so stupid where you know he doesn't realize it's it's turn for time for his solo you know so that's one of the gag, good gags they have but it's mm -hmm. a great it's definitely a um classic you know heavy metal uh parody uh I, my dream my dream concert uh, uh show would be to have bad news open for spinal tap yeah, that'd be pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. All right, gents. So thank you so much, uh, T. Mike. Plug your book one more time, if you wouldn't mind, and the, the website. Rock, the Rockopedia Fake Bandica. You can find a link to purchase it off of Amazon.com at fakebands.com. That's plural, fakebands.com. Uh, and uh, be warned that um, I am attempting to get my own Rockopedia Fake Bandica podcast going. So check your local podcasting uh, stations for that uh, when we try to launch that in the next coming months. Super. Really awesome. It's been All a right. great pleasure uh, talking to you guys today. Thank you. This has been the Mount Rushmore Podcast. I'm always Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. And I've been Mike Childs. <laughs> All right.